0: BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back.
1: Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. bringing you the rest of my Times radio show. Don't forget, you can listen live, 10 till 1, Monday to Friday, on your DAB radio, in your kitchen, in your car, in your shower. Uh, I know some people like to listen to the show or uh, on your smart speaker or get, download the Times Radio app, wherever you get your apps from. Right, coming up on today's episode, what is Keir Starmer waiting for? That's what one shadow cabinet minister said to me recently. Another one said, uh, he's, mis- he's Mr. Boring. Their voters aren't even thinking about him most of the time. There's some real concern that given all of the problems the government is facing from party gate to the cost of living, why is the Labour Party's lead only in the single figures? And has Keir Starmer got what it takes to actually secure a victory at the next election? So coming up, we've got a deep dive into Labour's shadow cabinet. Patrick McGuire and I have been speaking to lots of Labour benchers and getting their uh, private assessment of how the Labour leader is doing. It's a really fascinating listen to so that's coming up in just a moment. First, though, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. And on a Monday, it's Libby Rachey, it's Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester.
2: The Columnists with Libby Rachy, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio.
1: Yes, it's that time. we to speak to two of our favourite columnists. We've got Libby Purvis.
3: Morning, Libby.
4: Morning.
1: And we've got Rachel Sylvester. Morning, Rachel.
3: Morning, Matt.
1: So, uh, Rachel, let's start with you. And the, the Times Education Commission, which has been,
3: is it a year in the making? A year, yes. Yeah. A little over a
1: year. A little over a year, where you've sort of yeah. taken a proper in-depth look at what's going on in the education. And you've found, uh, particularly particular today, taking a, a look at primary primary school pupils arriving at school already so far behind in terms of can't say their own names, can't drink out of a cup, can't hold a pen or a pencil... Uh, and and that, unfortunately, once they, they start off behind, that can set them back for a long time, can't it?
3: Yeah, exactly. So our final report of the Education Commission is coming out on Wednesday. Uh, and there'll be lots of coverage in the paper about that. But the uh, the um, subject that we drew out this morning was on what happens before children even get to school. And one of the things that shocked me most, one of the statistics, is that there is an 18-month gap between Richer and poorer children at sixteen, but forty percent of that gap emerges before they're five. So there is this kind of there's a huge lack of a level playing field before kids even get to school. Um, one of the most heartbreaking interviews I think I've ever done actually as a journalist was with a head teacher in um, Nottinghamshire, head teacher of a primary school, and she just described the sort of dystopian reality for her children where a third of the reception class the five year olds were still in nappies when they started children were arriving unable to speak properly unable to say their own name unable to hold a pencil she was you know she was thinking about how to do assemblies about how to hold a knife and fork as children are eating their food with their fingers and you know scooping up their sunday lunch with their hands rather than a knife and fork. Um, And she said, you know, the problem is we can't get on to literacy and numeracy because our day is, you know, change nappies, scribbling uh, and brushing teeth because children also are learning to brush their teeth. One child had arrived with I think they'd lost 13 teeth before they'd even started school because they hadn't been brushing their teeth properly. Um, It's just um, heartbreaking and terrifying, really. So one of the things we have been looking at is that just arguing that actually the government shouldn't be too nervous about um advising parents you do need to talk to your child you do need to play with your child those things really matter it's not the nanny state it's just you know good, parenting. Um, good family parenting. And good parenting exactly
1: uh, libby what do you make of this it's such a it's it's one thing to identify the problem finding a solution is harder to come by isn't it
4: well, it is, but it, it breaks my heart. I mean, the degree of negligence and ignorance and stupidity in this, we've learnt today that even birds teach their chicks, that even parrots teach their chicks how to how to sort of express themselves in birdsong. Um, but we have to stop being squeamish about what happens in homes, about condemning people's culture or people's ways or people's family life. We actually do have to stop that and step in. Um, the Sure Start system was at some point, I believe, doing quite well. Uh, But that has to be, people have to be urged towards it. You know, these children are, a child who can't drink from a cup or keep themselves clean or know their own name by the age of four is a child abused. We all get obsessed about sexual abuse because everyone is obsessed about sex. But this is another kind of abuse, and it is just as serious. And I think we we have to step in at the family stage uh, even at the risk of having nanny state shouted, um, it, it's it's actually vital. I mean, we both ends of life, we're just failing horribly. We're failing horribly in supporting the very youngest, and we're failing horribly in social care for the very oldest. And these should be absolutely core things, and they don't seem to be in government terms.
1: Uh, I had a conversation a few weeks ago now, Rachel, with um, Nadim Zahar, and he was talking about his family hubs, and these, mm. these were going to be this was going to be a sort of one stop shop where families could go and get help. I tried to point out to him that sound an awful lot like like Sure Start centres, which um, many of which closed during the, mm. the coalition years, uh, partly because they thought it was all sort of yummy mummies, middle class people, and also councils b- having their budgets cut. Shut mm. lots of things. Um, th- is there a sort of reinvention of the wheel here? Or well, is there actually a problem? the problem that the sort of people we are talking about aren't the sort of people who are going to go and seek out a family hub that actually well, you need to go yeah. and knock on their door, not send them a leaflet about something that, you know on the other side of town?
3: Mm. So that is true. But the, the problem is, I think, the the creation of these family hubs is an acknowledgement that everybody really now, of all parties, accepts that this is a crucial part, that the sort of first three years of life are absolutely essential for outcomes later on, and therefore for, so for educational outcomes and therefore for the economy. Um, but the, the, there are 75 of these family hubs, and a thousand Sure Start centres have shut. So it's just the scale of ambition is is just absolutely not enough. Um, and in terms of the families who you most need to get to, you're absolutely right. I think um, you need to have for some of these families people going and knocking on the doors. People actually you, you, they're not necessarily going to volunteer to come to something. But I've I've certainly visited. Inspirational schools, as one um, called Reach in Feltham, where they run, they basically consider education as starting in the womb, and they run um, classes for pregnant uh, mothers before they even get to having the baby then they run parenting classes and eventually the children join the nursery and then the children join the school Uh, and they find those mothers um, and fathers through the health visitors who go into every home at some point at least so they try and uh, identify the most vulnerable um, and then try and persuade them and say look because actually I think every parent at least to start with, wants to do the best for their child. I don't think it's true that any parent wants to neglect their child. They just don't really know how to care for them. There's a
4: health visitor shortage. I mean, you say health visitors go into into every house, maybe once, possibly. And in some areas, uh, I've heard you, you don't you don't ever see a health visitor at all in the home.
3: Yeah, well, you need more. But I think every every expectant mother has some connection with the NHS at some point whether that's a health visitor at home or they go for a checkup, check almost every expectant mother. Um, so that is the route. You need to have much greater connection between health and education. And it can work. So Angela Rayner talks, their deputy labour leader, talks really powerfully about how she grew up. Her mother was bipolar. She was basically a carer for her mother from a tiny age. Um, so she never had any love as a child. And then when she went to... When she became a mother at the age of 15, she didn't realise that you were supposed to talk to your child or hug them. She thought you just feed them, you make sure they're clothed, and that's enough. And then she went to Sure Start and realised that actually, no, you're supposed to interact with them. And it Mm -hmm. completely changed the way she behaved with her child. And she said the most moving thing was seeing her own son just involuntarily hug and um, kiss his daughter. She realised that that kind of cycle of dysfunctionality have been broken mm. so you can make a difference
1: but, but like I said it um, Libby was saying you know that all that requires resources and in quite intense I suppose the mm. other thing as well it's not you know the one visit that identifies the problem you then need the resources to, to flood in and and do something about it otherwise um things just don't change yeah
3: but you save so much money later on so exactly, there's one, exactly. you know one study found that I think for every pound you spend on early years, you save sixteen pounds later on because you're you basically you mm. stop those children spiralling into crime into sort of dysfunctionality. They become much more economically active if they're kind of well balanced.
1: Uh, let's um. But right uh,
3: now, what govern what government ever cares about what happens under the next government? the long term? Exactly, they can't. They exactly. can't
1: that's the problem. And that's yeah. true of like you know the same as we've talked about that the same as to the NHS. You know, why would you start training some more doctors now when it could be? three or four prime ministers away uh, before yeah. you ever see those doctors. Um, Libby, I really want to talk about your column today because I enjoyed the sort of, in defence of being rude about other people's work, um, uh, as, a, as a long-standing <laughs> theatre critic, you have, uh, I suppose, a certain amount of skin in this game. Um, uh, but it's it all prompted, but I thought this was very, well, um, a little bit weird, Anthony Horowitz, who's, who's killed off a playwright in his latest work. Uh, for being rude about um, uh, the work of a fictional person, no, he's killed, off a, of criti- he's killed a off a critic. He's, he's a playwright. Playwright, that's playwright,
4: right. playwright, the playwright might has kill critic. Off yeah. The critic. Well, I was. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was doing a bit of. I was doing a bit of mockery about that, just for fun, really. And uh, it led on to re- reflecting something wider, which is about the declining art of emotional self-management, also known as getting over yourself and yeah. um, <laughs> not indulging your emotions. <laughs> And we, we had last week the pharmaceutical industry popping up saying, oh, you can mend marriages with MDMA. You know, you do it in marriage counseling, give them a drug, and they'll love each other more. And that for a social night out, people in the future will need a squirt of artificial oxytocin. And I just thought... We need to get away from this business of the idea that our emotions, being chemical, can be chemically sorted out. Uh, you know, which would include, I suppose, fogging theatres uh, with with oxytocin, oxytocin <laughs> mist, so that everybody feels a sense of love and adoration, uh, which would please um, easily wounded people like Mr. Horowitz. So I just bang the two things together, and I I, I felt. Uh, I mean, I, I do feel critics get a bad press. I mean, Horowitz is forever saying, oh, we, we know, cancel culture is dreadful and writers must speak their truth and, and be free to say anything. But critics are writers too. You know, <laughs> and if they're having a horrible night uh, or judging it a horrible night, they've got to say so. You know, people mm-hmm. buy tickets. You know, and the theatre industry, which I love dearly, I'm mean, a devotee. You know, they're always saying, sort of, "Well, you know, our lives are precarious and our work is so hard." Well, people work hard and have precarious lives who buy tickets as well, <laughs> and they need to be told how a show feels. Yeah, and if so, it's if yeah, it's rubbish, yeah, I've been on a holiday. A, i to come back all You're
1: providing a reader badded. service. <laughs> you're providing a reader service. If something's rubbish, don't waste your money on something. Um, and and that, you know, maybe they won't get any better if critics don't put these things out. Um, uh, what
4: about the oxytocin fog? Do you think we need
1: that? No. <laughs> No. Uh, <laughs> it's the
3: hardest job, I think, being a theatre critic. I am not jealous of that job. But I was really interested by Libby's column from the point of view of the Education Commission, actually, because we've been looking at the kind of mental health crisis in schools. And, of course, you need more counsellors and things, and um, uh, that we're looking at that in our recommendations that are out next week. But actually, you also almost more importantly you need to build emotional resilience in children and yeah, young yeah, people yeah. so you don't reach that crisis point so the mm-hmm. ideal thing should be that we don't need any counsellors actually because we've got sort of children who uh, understand how to regulate their emotions and are well balanced and have a sense of that th- we've got in this country one of the highest you know both one of the unhappiest children but also highest levels of fear of failure um so you need to give a resilience to that and help children to realize that it's okay to fail in fact it's even okay to get a bad review perhaps
1: <laughs> right exactly and then adjusted to that and yeah it was, it was someone who's been on the receiving end of bad reviews it's fine uh, you just re, just read the, just reread the good ones Libby Burris and Rachel Sylvester there and of course you can read them in the times every week just get yourself a subscription go to the times.co.uk forward slash box up next what star are we waiting for
3: to get started visit plushcare.com slash weight loss that's plushcare.com slash weight loss
0: this episode of politics without the boring bits is brought to you by Luton Rising owners of London Luton Airport the UK's most socially impactful airport find out more at lutonrising.org.uk
1: you're listening to the red box podcast now it's time for this
0: the big thing on times radio
1: What is Keir Starmer waiting for? It's a question his own shadow cabinet are now asking. We've been speaking to some of the Labour leader's closest colleagues. We're getting increasingly jittery about whether he is the man for the top job. Now, two and a half years ago, Labour slumped to its worst result for more than 80 years. Since then, Keir Starmer has sought to purge his party of anti semites suspended his predecessor, Jeremy Corbyn, charted a cautious uh, course of support for the government on Covid and Ukraine, and dragged its policy platform back to the centre. But a string of underwhelming performances in the Commons and on television, prevarication over a summer of industrial unrest, and the lack of a coherent pitch on the economy, or indeed any substantial domestic policy, has left those closest to the leader to wonder aloud if his poll over Boris Johnson the Conservatives is as commanding as it appears. With the cost of living soaring in a way millions have not experienced before, Boris Johnson's popularity has plummeted after becoming the first Prime Minister to be fined in office for breaking the law. The Sue Gray report crystallising public anger. And two in five Tory MPs last week voting to have their own leader removed. Yet, Labour's lead in the polls, admittedly no mean feat in itself, is stuck in single figures. In the most recent YouGov poll for the Times, carried out after the confidence vote last week, Labour was on 39%, just seven points ahead of the Tories. Now, of those who voted for the Conservatives in 2019, 76% are sticking with Boris Johnson. Only 9% are switching to Labour, with the rest scattering across the Lib Dems, the Greens and Reform UK. Labour, meanwhile, is losing 8% of its 2019 vote to the Lib Dems and 6% to the Greens. In a separate survey for Opinion published in the Observer at the weekend, 28% of voters think Boris Johnson would make the better Prime Minister, ahead of the 26% who voted for Keir Starmer. So the big question is, what is Keir Starmer's Labour Party all about? Well, even he doesn't seem to know. In the last two years as leader, we've counted up at least 10 different campaign slogans.
6: It's only words And words
5: are all there, To take your heart
1: away Another future is possible.
5: The Labour Party is under new
1: management. The Labour Party is under new leadership. Secure our economy, protect our NHS, and rebuild Britain. A new chapter, stronger together. Work, care, equality, security. The values I've outlined um, today of security, of prosperity,
6: um, and, um, uh, and and uh, uh, and. And um, respect.
1: On your side.
0: It's only words, and words are long, eh, eh, to take your heart away.
1: Yeah, they all seem to be slogans in search of an idea. But without a defining mission, Keir Starmer's leadership has become a collection of hard-to-disagree-with positions which go largely unnoticed by the electorate. Detoxifying after the Corbyn era was vital, but it's not enough to overturn the huge electoral deficit needed to secure victory. Remember this, Labour needs to gain 127 seats for a majority of just one. Well, joining me in the studio now is Patrick McGuire, Times Red Box editor. Morning.
2: Good morning, Matt.
1: Explain that both of us have, over the past week or so, uh, it almost it happened by accident. We were in Westminster last As week. As all and we good were, journalism does. Uh, and we were just approached by some Labour frontbenchers who were just quite keen to voice it's not
2: anger, nobody's saying you should go, but jitters, unease, nervousness. Yeah, a feeling of impatience that it's taking the Labour Party so long to articulate what it stands for in this uh, era of complete Tory disarray. There is a feeling that at the equivalent point in John Major's premiership, when that government was falling apart at the seams, voters had a clear idea of what Tony Blair stood for, what his um, big thesis, idea, offer, particularly on the economy, and that's the uh, that's the subject animating Labour MPs, Tory MPs, indeed the whole country, unlike anything else. There is a definite feeling um, that Keir Starmer is falling short when it comes to making the big bold offer. Um, Not necessarily, say, radical uh, policy offer, but a big, bold, clear offer to the public on the subject that's animating them more than anything else. We'll hear from uh, what Shadow Cabinet ministers are saying off the
1: record to us in just a moment, but it's also starting to seep out into the public domain too. Concern about whether or not Keir Starmer's really got what it takes to become the first Labour opposition leader for a quarter of a century to enter number 10. This was Angela Rayner, his deputy, speaking to the BBC last week saying he needs more welly.
3: Sometimes he
0: takes the emotion out of it and he puts the sort of strategic stuff in and I think, no, put some more welly into it because I know he, he doesn't care any less than I do about those issues. He just has a different style of putting it over.
1: Peter Mandelson, the former business secretary uh, in the last Labour government, was on this programme last week. He gave Keir Starmer just 12 months to lay out a plan or risk falling short at the next election. I think he's got about a year. Yeah, you know, we're not going to have the next general election
6: anytime soon. <laughs> no, I think he's got a year, but, he, he, but he, at each stage uh, between now and the next year and the coming election, we've got to see uh, more powerful brushstrokes Put down on that canvas.
1: And Wes Streeting, the Shadow Health Secretary, tipped as a future leader himself, said this at an Institute for Government event. The Labour Party
2: cannot rely on the Tories' failure to deliver a Labour government. I think the local election results show the the country has turned its back on the Conservatives, uh, but there's more for Labour to do to win over the hearts and minds of the British
1: people to actively want a Labour government. And in a moment, we'll also hear from John McDonnell, the former Shadow Chancellor under Jeremy Corbyn, who suggested Starmer could be repeating the same mistakes the Corbyn team made in 2019. Even the Tories are bewildered that Labour aren't miles ahead. Actually, I think if you look at the um, how far we are behind in the polls, for a mid-term government, uh, the, the surprise is that Labour aren't doing better. That was Dominic Raab on this programme last week. Well, privately, Shadow Cabinet Ministers and allies of Keir Starmer are more scathing. Uh, Patrick, uh, the, have you been surprised by the willingness of people to talk, albeit off the record?
2: Albeit off the record, and always with the caveat that they are broadly supportive of the project, if we can use a bit of Corbynite language there. The project, if the Corbynite project was to reshape the Labour Party um, to, uh, uh, with the aim of remodelling the British economy, the um, Starmerite project is to, uh, in their eyes, detoxify the Labour Party and wrest it back from the left's control and turn it back into a, um, you know, what you might call a conventional party with a mainstream offer on the economy. Um, And up until now, I think shadow cabinet ministers broadly have been very disciplined in not saying anything that could be construed as briefing against the leader, undermining him, whatever. Uh, Recently, though, and the odd paradox is that Labour ahead in the polls. The Tories in total disarray. You are picking up a lot of frustration, uh, spontaneous complaining, sounding off.
1: Uh, and well, let's uh, let's take a listen to uh, some of that now. Uh, this was, you know, we spoke to as many frontbenchers who would meet for a coffee or pick up the phone, uh, collecting that honest assessment of where the party is getting things right and wrong. They're all off the record in the hope of getting a more honest assessment they've been voiced up by the team here. So this is what one shadow cabinet minister told us.
3: Keir only does politics in the most basic primary colours. At some point we have got to get beyond that. It's been two years already. Our party conference in September is his last chance to show what he really stands for.
1: So Peter Mandelson was talking about he'd got a year. That's saying he's got until uh, the autumn. Let's take a listen to another shadow cabinet minister.
7: There is a short term plan we had to respond to the cost of living crisis with the windfall tax. But long term, it's about better economic growth. UK Tory growth record is dismal. It makes us poorer as a country and puts upward pressure on tax.
1: Patrick, that's a sort of sign of the slight shift in emphasis. That, that, you know, they, they push for the windfall tax. Uh, the government ended up stealing the policy. The Labour Party don't really get any credit for it. But they need a long, you know, a windfall tax on energy companies is not going to be the thing. He's going to win an election for the Labour Party yeah, later. Exactly. Listen, is he exciting? No, of course not. That isn't why we ended up with him. But there's a big difference between not being Mr Razzmatazz and boring everyone to death. Actually, it's worse than that. To loads of my constituents, he just doesn't exist in their minds at all. I mean, Patrick, that's pretty scathing, that one.
2: Yeah, it certainly isn't. Look, back again and again, this comes back to the difference between tactics and strategy. Keir Starmer's Labour Party, Keir Starmer's leadership has proven to be quite adept at short-term tactical decisions, be that calling for the Prime Minister to resign of a party gate, um, uh, you know, the windfall tax, such and such. But the, the concern is, if you make these bold tactical calls, and you don't have the anchor of a strategy and a set of key principles, be they on the economy or on domestic issues, then you end up high and dry and marooned in moments such as for instance, when Keir Starmer was uh, announced as being under arrest- investigation by Durham police, right? If, um, you know, you're only thinking in terms of tactical uh, considerations like, you know, can we rehabilitate the Labour Party? Um, can we call for the Prime Minister to try resign, etc, cetera, etc? Cetera, that becomes the, the sum and the totality yeah. of the offer, where if you had something else to articulate, then you might not be backed into corners by those short-term tactical calls.
1: OK, let's take a listen to another uh, member of the Shadow Cabinet now talking about Keir Starmer's leadership.
0: The problem is the lack of urgency. Keir warns the Shadow Cabinet not to be complacent, but there's no energy or direction from his team. We don't need a full manifesto, but we do need a big vision, clear priorities and a bold offer. What are they waiting for?
1: That's a big question, uh, Patrick. What are they waiting for? And actually, time is ticking on. You know, yes, but he had it was difficult. He took over in a pandemic. He couldn't get out there and set out his vision there's this growing sense though that maybe there isn't one and that's part of the of the problem that the, if the leader doesn't have any i mean if nothing else boris johnson's guided vision that boris johnson should be prime minister and will r- ruthlessly pursue that uh against you know whatever's uh thrown at him keir starmer what what is it that makes keir starmer want to be labour leader and and prime minister
2: yeah exactly there's a sense there's one um, <clears throat> uh, Starmer Ally put it to me last week that good political projects can be summed up in a word. Um, you know, even Jeremy Corbyn had a clear political offer. It was, you know, austerity. Uh, Cameron and Osborne had the deficit. Tony Blair had modernising. The issue for Keir Starmer is you don't know what he would say when asked for that word. Um, and it reminds me of, uh, you know, uh, some listeners may know I wrote an acclaimed history of the Corbyn period, um, during which Keir Starmer's aides were um, talking about getting me in a room and asking him, look, we need to put together your leadership offer. What is it you believe? What is the, What is? How would you sum up your politics? And for ages and ages and ages, they sort of hammered him with questions. And the best he could offer at the end was, um, oh, when I'm uh, passing over injustice on one side of the road, I have to cross the road. Yeah, sort of very um, primary colours, moral socialism. Um, but that's not the same thing as having... A plan for the country in 2022, is it?
1: Now, we should stress that there there doesn't mean an awful lot of goodwill towards Keir Starmer among his colleagues, among Labour MPs, and the Shadow Cabinet, actually, more so than you'd ever have got in Jeremy Corbyn's days, even from his actual Shadow Cabinet. And they give him considerable credit for getting Labour even to the point of being competitive, as this Shadow Cabinet Minister told us. I don't have an axe to grind. I'm not one of those people with an eye on the leadership. I want Keir to succeed. Considerable progress has been made since 2019 when we were smashed. It was a genuine question as to whether the Labour Party
2: was finished. Huge progress has been made in dealing with the anti-Semitism problem. Two and a half years ago, there would have been questions about Labour's position on Ukraine. Now, that just isn't an issue. Keir and the Shadow Treasury team are saying Labour has a problem on financial discipline,
1: so we're not going to make spending commitments which aren't costed. That's the right thing to do,
2: but it means you can be left looking like your locker is empty. Keir needs to paint a picture of the things that he cares about and what his priorities would be in government. No-one is quite clear on what his big driving mission is. Nobody wants to get rid of him. We want to help him succeed.
1: But none of us are brought in. It's an interesting uh, uh, p- um, insight to what's going on. That's, that's from someone who described themselves as a massive ally. There was another shadow cabinet minister who listed a whole load of policies that me. We had business rates reforms, takeover laws, climate change... But then added...
7: What is fair to ask is have we articulated that into something that's more than the sum of its parts? We have got to do the next stage and inspire people. Keir has the ability to be PM. He has held executive positions. But is he a good leader of the opposition who can get us into government?
1: I should stress again that all of these have been voiced up by colleagues, so don't try and guess uh, who it is.
2: Arlene Foster with some trenchant (laughs) criticism of the leader there.
1: Patrick, one of the things that's come up a lot is the particular PMQs last week really acted as a sort of lightning rod for concern as to why, in what the government had decreed, was NHS week, health week, they were going to make lots of announcements on the NHS. Uh, Keir Starmer, uh, instead, at PMQs, uh, just raised what exactly it was the government wanted to talk about. Prime Minister's Big Plan Act is so tired that even once loyal MPs don't believe in. And it's not just waiting for a GP. It's waiting for all NHS treatment. And pretending to build 40 new hospitals won't work either. They want him to change, but he can't. Quite a lot of Keir Starmer's colleagues want
2: him to change as well. Ultimately, that's the problem. As a pollster put this to me after we um, made this criticism at some length, on your show when we were doing PMQs on Wednesday. I got a message from a, a pollster who's done work with the Labour Party who said, listen, the problem isn't necessarily that Keir Starmer went on health as eccentric as that might seem, given that the government wants to talk about health all week. The problem is more that Keir Starmer's delivery and uh, his line of attack and his fleetness of foot in the chamber was more underwhelming. Now, you can ascribe that to um, he's not ins- he's insufficiently political, so has made the wrong judgment as to what to go on, or um, that anything Keir Starmer would have said in that moment would have been uh, underwhelming, because even his best friends would say he wasn't uh, elected on the strength of his Commons performances. There's a great line by an old colleague of his at the bar who said, you know, he was always great with judges making technical arguments about the finer points of legislation than he was um convincing the hearts and minds of, uh, of jurors. So I think we're back That's to that. really interesting. It that all that comes it back it to the politics, sort yeah, of yeah. speaker Keir Starmer is, I think.
1: And as they try to sort of thrash out uh, an economic uh, policy, uh, Keir Starmer has now convened a sort of brains trust made up of Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, Pat McFadden, the Shadow Chief Secretary of the Treasury, and the two election coordinators, Shabana Mahmood and Conor McGinn. But again, it's all that even speaks to he can't really decide himself Uh, what he necessarily wants to do. In fact, this is uh, Rachel Reeves, uh, the Shadow Chancellor, on Times Radio yesterday.
7: Well, if two years ago someone had said, you know, Labour might be back in uh, office within one term after that catastrophic defeat, I think most of people would have just said, you're crazy. Uh, But that's now a very real possibility. Uh, That was
1: uh, Rachel Reeves speaking yesterday. Well, some Shadow Cabinet ministers believe that Labour should follow Olaf Scholz, the uh, German Chancellor, and develop an economic agenda that builds national self-sufficiency and resilience to external shocks as well as remaining open to globalism.
5: To put it crudely, Germany has three big economic problems. It's too dependent on Russia for energy imports, it's too dependent on China for manufacturing exports, and its flagship industrial sector has been losing foreign investment for years. Olaf Scholz's recipe for fixing these problems can be summed up in a single word, diversification. On the energy front, his government is trying to massively expand renewable electricity generation It wants to quadruple wind power capacity and raise solar power tenfold by the end of the decade. At the same time, it has a plan to reduce its reliance on Russian pipeline gas by buying liquefied natural gas from other sources such as Qatar and the US, with the aim that no single country should in future supply more than 20% of its needs. On exports, it aims to keep its options open in China, while strengthening its trade ties with the rest of the world, in particular with underdeveloped markets such as India, and finally, on foreign investment, it's providing lavish subsidies and attempting to cut the Gordian knot of planning bureaucracy so that high-tech companies from overseas, such as Tesla and IBM, will build their factories in Germany.
1: That's Oliver Moody, the Times correspondent in Berlin,
2: giving us the politics of Olaf Scholz, Patrick. Yes, indeed, and if you listen to Keir uh, Starmer's—sorry, rather Peter Mandelson. God, that's a (laughs) Freudian slip. um, That some people in the Labour Party will find revealing. Peter Mandelson gave a big speech uh, in Durham, of all places, last week, in which he said uh, the Labour Party needed to forge a path on the economy—a new kind of thinking that was one, both open to globalisation, but two, uh, put priorities on economic self-sufficiency, resilience, and keeping uh, good high-tech jobs in Britain and he questioned whether Labour's uh, controversial commitment to spend 28 billion quid a year on the green transition um, when it gets into government, when or if it gets into government rather, would just result in giving lots of capital to foreign companies. And it's that thinking Oliver Moody um, described there that's proving increasingly influential in the, in the circle Starmer listens to.
1: It's interesting you make that point. You know They have got policies. You know The £28 billion on the green transition, one of their biggest they announced billions of pounds they would spend on an education catch-up programme. But it doesn't sort of all all hang together. Let's bring in John McDonnell, former Shadow Chancellor under, under Jeremy Corbyn. He's been there and done that in you know the, from the 2017 election, which went well, to the 2019 election that went less well. Morning, John. Morning. Morning. Um, what is your assessment of how Keir Starmer's doing, first of all?
6: Well, it's not good enough yet, is it? You, you seem to have spoken to virtually every shadow cabinet member, haven't you? <laughs> well,
1: there's quite a few, there's quite, there's, a, there's quite a lot of them around the table. We've spoken to quite a lot of them, yeah, to really get a sense of uh, of what's going on. Uh,
6: yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna have a pop at Keir or anything like that. I'm not into that sort of stuff. Um, I've always said, look, uh, give him his chance. But I think you've, in your conversations with shadow cabinet members, I think you're actually reflecting the frustration about the the need now for the, get a sense of urgency about establishing a narrative, a sense of direction, and that at least the the key elements of a policy program Um, i think you mentioned it earlier i've been listening to a bit of your conversation patrick Uh, you mentioned earlier about learning less uh, i've mentioned learning lessons from the defeat in 2019 you know some people say well why should anyone listen to you after such a heavy defeat well sometimes the best generals learn as much from their defeats as they do from their victories to be honest and The thing about 2019 is that it was an early general election. It was because of Brexit. It was two years in advance of the normal cycle. And what we were trying to do is, uh, well, shift as much of the agenda away from Brexit as we could. We failed to do that. Everything was discussed via Brexit. So we were shoving out policy after policy. And, of course, what happens is, is that people, you lose credibility because people don't understand the policy, you haven't bedded it down. So I've been saying for quite a while now to anyone around the shadow cabinet and I'm trying to get the message to Keir and his staff in particular, people around him, that actually for a new narrative and new policies, I think it takes about 12 months at least, maybe 18 months, longer. And the idea is, you know, you announce a policy, you explain how it fits into the overall objectives, you rebut the criticisms, then you explain it again about what it will mean to the individual and their families, their communities. And it takes quite a while to bed that down. And my anxiety at the moment is that we're running out of time because election could come at any time. I think it must probably will be spring of 2024, but it could come earlier, particularly if they change leaders, the Tories change leaders. So I'm worried we're running out of time to get the message across. And in that instance, then we can't motivate our own people. At the moment, our success is largely living off the unpopularity of Boris Johnson. Tory voters staying at home or in the opinion polls, Tory support dropping, but not necessarily coming to us because at the moment it's still on the doorstep. Not sure what we stand for and certainly not inspiring at the moment. So. Anyway, that's the message I've been trying to get across, whether anyone's listening or
1: not. Goodness knows. <laughs> uh, John, just finally, I wonder whether you've seen in Keir Starmer because the question, and I've posed this a lot over the past year yeah. or so, really, is is he keeping his powder dry, or has he has he got no powder? If anything, you could argue that Jeremy Corbyn believed in too much. There was too much stuff going on there, <laughs> well, um, this, and, you know, and the public at the end didn't want it. But is, are you confident
6: that you know well, that Keir Starmer's
1: got that powder?
6: Here's a funny thing, isn't it? Let me just say comment on what you said about Jeremy. In 2017, the message was straightforward and you mentioned it before, we're gonna end austerity, Oomph, that's it. Then from 17, uh, between 15 and 17, and then into 17, we were able to uh, identify so the anti-austerity narrative, some of the policies that contributed towards that. And if you look at the polling on the individual policies, they actually individually, they were very popular but it didn't fit together as an overall narrative. I think we lost the narrative between 17 and 19. Anti-austerity before then, certainly anti-austerity, but we needed something more to bring it all yeah. together. And the individual policies, though individually popular, again, you need to ensure you bedded them down with the narrative. And so my, my anxiety is that you mentioned ideology before, and Keir, people want to know what do you believe in And what sort of society do you want? Just tell us roughly what you're aiming for. And then we can talk about some of the individual policies and how they fit in. That isn't there at the moment. So that's why a number of us are saying, look, we need to get a grip on this because I am worried time is running out.
1: John McDonnell, former Shadow Chancellor, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks so much for joining us on on Times Radio. Uh, just finally, we can hear now from uh, Ben Nunn, former uh, Director of Communications for Keir Starmer, until uh, relatively recently. We asked him for his thoughts on how Keir Starmer was faring.
7: The truth is the economy is going to define the next election. It's going to be the most important issue at that next election. Arguably, the economy always is, but this time I think it's going to be particularly so. So the focus now for the entire party needs to be on winning that economic argument. On how long Keir's got to do it, the election is two years away. It could even be two and a half years away, particularly if Johnson decides to run the clock all the way down to December 2024. So the party does have time, and I know what it's like when you're in... leader's office you think you need to rush out a manifesto always policies all the time you don't there is there is time that's why i think the focus should be on the argument for 2024 making set piece interventions that begin to define that argument for 2024 particularly around the election this year's conference will of course be important because they always are they're always seen as moments when the leadership is setting out a stall. But the thing I would say, if I was still in there right now, is that we have got time. We've got momentum on our side, given that the Conservative Party seems determined to lose the next election. But the most important thing right now is looking ahead to that economic argument and making sure the Labour Party is in a position to win it.
1: That's Ben Nunn, the uh, former director of communications for KISS Timer. Patrick Maguire,
2: uh, a final thought from you. Well, I think it's very striking that John McDonnell and Ben Dunn are both essentially saying the same thing which is Labour needs an anchor for all of its policies and an anchor that is authentically Keir Starmer and the big question not to make this about an ad hominem is what does Keir Starmer think what does Keir Starmer want and what can Keir Starmer define himself and his party as beyond what they're not i.e. neither Jeremy Corbyn nor Boris Johnson and whether Keir Starmer has the wit or political acumen or nous to do that is a question that even his shadow cabinet ministers are yet to answer.
1: That's so all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday 10 till 1 on Times Radio and we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.